World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Okay, so here we are in the main body of today's podcast, and this is a show I've been looking forward to doing for a little while. Um, we're going to be speaking to Mark Gilroy today, and he's the Managing Director of TMSDI, uh, TMS Development International. He's an all-round psychology geek. He's really passionate about this stuff, and we're going to be having a conversation today about introversion and extroversion um, and some of those sort of ways that we think about ourselves and, and sort of divide ourselves and understand ourselves. Um, before we get into that conversation, though, Mark, would you be able to introduce yourself and say hi to the audience, please? Thank you so much for having me, James. What a pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, yes, so my name's Mark. Um, I'm the managing director of this company called TMSDI. We help L&D practitioners, coaches, HR professionals improve the way that they think, the way that they talk, and the way that they lead by using a whole range of psychometric tools, some of which include extroversion and introversion. So that's one of the reasons we're going to be bringing some of that into the discussion today. Um, and uh, yeah, I... I um, Alongside my role, I, I've got a background in business psychology and I work as an executive coach, training consultant and team facilitator. So you'll find me you'll find me generally tweeting, blogging, vlogging about all of those sorts of things um, wherever you like to find your content. Brilliant. All that people stuff is so fascinating. And, and I often describe myself as like a fan of this psychology stuff. I'm kind of late in life to this stuff, but it's, um, it's fascinating. And, and as a sort of personal reflection... I believe that over the course of my life, my journey has moved from being quite extroverted towards increasingly being introverted, particularly as context change and things like that. And, and maybe we'll explore that in a little bit. But I'd like to just start off by, you know, chucking those words out there and asking you, you know, what, what really do they mean, right? We've got introversion and we've got extroversion, right? So could you just sort of summarize what they are, maybe what the relationship between them is, where they come from? Just a, a bit of a, a 101 on introversion and extroversion, if you could. Mm. Yeah, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting question to even summarize because the words themselves come from Carl Jung, right? So they're, they're, from, they're from his own theory into sort of psychological typologies. And that in itself is a bit of a challenge because we're going back decades and decades of when, when his original thinking around psychological types was generated. And in my view, we're probably to a rebrand of some of these characteristics. They're just words that are there to describe behaviours that we sense from ourselves and behaviour, importantly, that we observe in others. But critically, we're only seeing that behaviour through our own lens of preference, be it extroversion or introversion. So it's, it's kind of fundamentally flawed. So before I get to your, your, the answer to your question, I think that's really important to kind of caveat that we're talking about an aspect of bias here before we get into defining it we're saying actually it's important to say all of us have the psychological lenses that we wear that allow us to make sense of the world we have to give ourselves a bit of permission to do that um otherwise the world will be a very um, daunting and intimidating and overwhelming place um but researchers and psychologists like Jung, there have been others as well along over the years have sought to just help simplify and understand what we see in others in terms of behavior and in terms of thinking style by coming up with some terms. Um, yeah, and so we have extroversion and introversion. These are probably some of the most popular psychological terms that are used outside of our profession. I think 
that I'm aware of anyway. I think most people that you asked on the street would have a pretty firm idea of what somebody with an introvert approach or somebody with an extrovert approach might look like. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. I mean, they're, they're kind of like the gate, gateway drug words of leading into personality. Do you know what I mean? They're like little anchors. And and also, I think they, they, they're they so reflective of us as individuals when we look at them, but that we're kind of drawn to that self-analysis in time. So I think people are, are sort of inclined to, to find, you know, to find the lens that turns the kaleidoscope of self-awareness into meaningful pictures that helps us categorize and understand ourselves and i think this language of introversion and extroversion is quite intuitive or or what they what they stand for feels quite intuitive though as you say it feels fairly reductive as well so so i guess there's a trade-off between the the simplification of what is fairly complex in terms of people into a fairly reduced definition and and the trade-off between you know what you lose in that simplification potentially and what you gain from having that common language and simplicity and, and something that's maybe a sort of anchor point of understanding yeah, and it is. It's a really fine balancing act of having a, a useful language that people can use to describe one another and making sure that it doesn't get taken too far by oversimplifying or maybe over-applying that thinking too broadly. Um, you know, I, th- I think fundamentally we're very much tribal beings and sometimes this language can be used to sort of segment and isolate people into certain groups based on those labels and language and, and we, that's certainly something we, we get away from in, in our work. But it can be a danger of using that that kind of language. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess if we think about them, you know, one feels kind of internal focused and one feels external focused. At its simplest, do you think that's that's part of it? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely, and that's the way I like to talk about it. Um, and I think um, my my favorite way of defining those two terms is to think about an imaginary cord between someone's brain and their mouth. So somebody with a more extrovert approach. That cord exists, but it's quite a short cord. And sometimes with very extreme cases, it's a tiny little cord. And and this is an an individual who might like to go from thinking to speaking to externalizing their thought really quickly. And actually, they have a high need to do that. And actually keeping all of those that that thinking contained inside creates a level of discomfort that is unsustainable. On the flip side, somebody with a more introvert preference... uh, has a longer cord between the brain and the mouth and actually lots of chatter and lots of activity and stimulation will happen, but it all happens internally before a conscious choice is often made to make that thinking external. Um, but yes, it is. It's, it's sort of, it is external versus internal. And that can also be associated. I've heard, heard people talk about it in terms of energy as well. Um, the, uh, psychologist, uh, Hans Eysenck, he, he talked about this in terms of stimulation theory in that, you know, as humans, we're almost a bit like Goldilocks. We're kind of, we, we want a level of stimulation that isn't just too much, not, not enough, but just right. And so Isaac thought some of these differences actually stemmed from difference in the brain structure called the ARAS. You have to be careful how you say that faster. It's the, the Aras. Um, and um, so this is the kind of the excitatory system of the brain that causes people to feel alert and awake. And it also has little mechanisms that do the opposite, like feeling kind of calm or bored. So it kind of controls that for us. And I think thought that actually what we observe in other people's behavior as, as typically extrovert was actually the result of someone who was naturally understimulated so that they were actually 
you know, moving themselves into situations and environments that naturally raise their level of stimulation to that just right temperature. And on the flip side, those with a more introvert approach were naturally overstimulated and were creating environments for themselves that actually brought that level of stimulation down to a more acceptable natural level. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. There's some, some great stuff in there. Um, firstly, I, I really like your reference to the cord and the cord analogy between the, the brain and our tongues because cords are scalar. So it's not this sort of binary piece. And that, that sort of elasticity and that infinite variety of um, distance gives an insight into you know the shades that exist within these concepts of introversion and extroversion. And, and that last point that you were speaking there uh, about, about the neurology I think, again, it's really interesting. So if, if I were to play that back, you know, having never heard it before with some sort of layman's terms, it feels to me like potentially our behaviors can be thought of to some extent as a balancing mechanism for ourselves. Is that right? So, you know, I mean, in the same way that physically, if I feel tense or, or worked up, I might run to release some of my physical energy and, and get some balance in there. Or if I'm hungry, I might choose to eat to retain some of my sort of nutrient balance. Does, does it feel like a sort of a similar sort of analogy there with our social balance, if you will, through our behaviors and, and how that relates to introversion, extroversion? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and from my perspective, it's all linked, right? So the aspect of, of knowing when you've, you've expended too much energy or that you need to go and recharge and, and charge back up your energy, whatever that means, whatever that looks like to you, is very valid in the sense of extroversion and introversion. Um, you know, and you could take this a bit stage further and say, well, which self are you talking about? And I think we you see at TMS, we, we really make a difference between the kind of work persona and the work self versus the non-work self, whether it's the family self or the, the social self or the um, uh, any other aspect of the identity that you want to, to work with. Because um, as an example, I very much resonate with the traditional definition of extroversion when I'm at work, when I'm doing this kind of thing, particularly, but outside of work, I would not be described as, I would not be described in that way at all by any of my friends, any of my family. I'm sure that wouldn't be the case. Um, and I, I definitely identify with more an introvert preference in, in that space. My favorite hobby, for example, is going to the cinema by myself. Brilliant, and that is that is absolutely how I recharge. If I don't have that in my life, I know that it's it's something that's it's a need that kind of draws me back to have that space where it's it's about reducing all stimulation down to one thing, um, which is quite rare actually in, in most most aspects of society now. Yeah, fabulous, and and all those I guess self regulatory behaviors are, are are really interesting, and and it does feel like the self regulation that we undertake is. And, and that we're drawn to as individuals is probably shaped to some extent by where we are on this, this scalar between introversion um, and extroversion. And I think that that distinction is so important in actually describing it. You used the word kaleidoscope earlier on about behavior, I think, and shades of preference. That's absolutely the way we like to, to talk about this with people. Um, and, and often this involves undoing the work that people may have done using maybe different types of psychometrics like you know for example Myers-Briggs which is very binary you know you are an extrovert and use that very labeling pigeonholing language or you are an introvert uh, without much consideration for any space in between it's and yes that that simplifies things and makes it easy to put people into these categories that are sort of helpful for having a 
discussion about difference. But long term, it doesn't really reflect the way things are. It doesn't reflect the reality of, of and the complexity of the human experience and human behavior. But also, behavior isn't binary. And and it's really important, I think, in the context of something like this, whether it's introversion, extroversion, or any of Jung's, you know, typological work, that we don't get sucked into this um, hook of trying to classify people by their behaviour and saying, you are this or you are this. You can absolutely be both and you can be varying degrees of both. Yeah. And and on that, you know, I've wondered about this a little while. You know, I, I've... Um done a range of assessment for myself and, and done some of these things with teams. And I guess I'm really interested in other domains in the power associated with things like taxonomy and structuring and, and the way that our language and the concepts that we use as framing mechanisms can anchor us and, and, and almost confine us. So I guess there's a question sort of exploring on, on what you've, what you've talked about there. Do you feel that when we are identified as a personality type or, or, you know, associated with certain traits, that that act of potentially being labeled or or named as a certain thing, does that go on to affect our behaviors? I mean, is it like cyclical like that? You know, if I'm told I'm an extrovert, do I adopt more extrovert behaviors? What's the sort of causal link or, or cycle there, if there is one? I'd love to be able to say yes, absolutely, yes, it does. Um, but I, I, I feel compelled to give you a very cop out answer there, James, which is that it kind of depends. It depends particularly on how you've been identified. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember a time where um, there used to be psychologists who would come into a team environment and they would start assessing people purely based on their observed behaviour in an environment like a classic assessment centre, for example. Um, inherently flawed of course laden with bias of course um and the same is true of self-assessment um you know if if you're getting somebody to complete a questionnaire and a profile you're asking them to self-identify with some statements or some questions and they will get a report based on their own answers to those questions and depending on their level of self-awareness insight that report's going to be either incredibly accurate or there may be some gaps. There may be some gaps that need kind of refining in a discussion. I think if somebody was to receive their, you know, a psychometric report and their reaction was something like, oh, I don't know if I, I agree with this. Um, in almost all cases, that can be sort of mirrored back and say, well, that's interesting because you just completed these questions. This is just This is just a kind of a reconstitution of your own answers. So what is it about your own answers that you're not so sure about? Um, in which case, you're not telling them that they're an an extrovert or an introvert, but actually you're helping them confirm their own self-perception. And most people like that. Most yeah. people like to have their own view of the world, their own way of considering the world confirmed. Again, this is like back to bias, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a confirmation issue, um, but I think on top of that, um, the psychology of expectation kicks in. So if you are told by an expert, this is a set of behaviours that you seem to be exhibiting, and this is a a kind of category of personality that you belong to that seems to be part of your identity, 
chances are most people will work that into their narrative of who they are and how they operate in the world. Brilliant. I mean, we love to reconstitute our past and reimagine our future and reframe our present all, all the time, don't we? Particularly if it's presented positively, right? So we all like yes. love to be the hero in, hero in our own story. So, you know, if, if somebody tells you, oh, James, you know, you've got a great, you know, a beautiful extrovert profile here and here are all the things that make you amazing and all the incredible things that you bring to your work. Of course, you're going to want to listen to that. Yeah, well, sorry, you can say that again if you want. I've got loads of time. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, so I guess thinking about that and, and thinking about the positivity associated with some of those messages and associated with different aspects of personality, uh, here's a question for you. Are, you know, are some areas or demands more popular than others? I mean, oh, oh, do people hold up with more esteem the you know, the outgoing extrovert, or do they hold up with more extreme, uh, more esteem, the reflective introvert? I mean, what, what's more popular? And does it change? Does it matter? What do, you, what do you think? I think it's a great question to ask teams. Uh, and, and we often do when we're working through this kind of thing about, you know, holding up um, not just what's more popular, but just some general held principles of qualities and potential restricting behaviors that both of those aspects of personality can bring to a team um either as a team member or maybe even as a manager or a leader and of course you know everything's just all different and you know there's no not necessarily any good or bad just different and so having said that i would say by and large the the trend is to bias towards more of an extrovert approach. And we see this in all of our research. So we've got 35 plus years of research, you know, two to 3 million people now have been through our, our own profiling system around this. And we do see on average, most people come out with a varying degree of extrovert preference. Differs by industry sometimes, different by, differs by profession sometimes. Um, but by and large, on average, there's some level of extra preference that comes out. Um, and that, of course, means that you are more likely to meet somebody with some degree of extrovert preference. Um, that has all kinds of implications for the way the culture of most workplaces is set up. Things like meetings, for example. You'll see that. You'll, and, you know, you'll, you'll recognize that in a lot of team meetings, particularly in-person meetings, they can tend to be dominated by people who like to externalize their thoughts. Um, and don't really create lots of space for people who maybe prefer a different approach uh, most of the time. And th that's that's a challenge, I think, for, for a lot of companies to just embrace that. We talk a lot about diversity, but really doing diversity in terms of you know diversity of thought requires shaking up some very embedded structures in the way that most workplaces are set up. Yeah. And, and with all of this, of course, comes the you know, the, the need to have a bit of an understanding of these different preferences and, and some of the, I guess, enablers for people of different preferences to, to bring their best and to, to be their best in, in, um, in the different workplaces. I've, I've got a question for you. My, this is a reflection of me. It's not academic at all. It's just sort of my, my thinking. It feels to me that over recent history, maybe the last 10 or 15 years, there's been potentially an upsurge in advocacy for the introverted type of um, behaviors in the workplace. Do, do you see that? I mean, it feels mm. to me like if we were looking back in time, you know, um, 
they they held up leaders and and you know uh, espoused behaviors in the workplace were more extrovert but but that's sort of been eroded through some of the um some of the industries we've seen and some of the leaders we've seen particularly coming out of maybe things like the tech space and, and design space and other places where maybe some of those other traits are, are um or other ways of working i should say other behaviors have led to success and fulfillment does that seem a fair assessment i think that's really fair i think um the work of someone like Susan Cain has done a lot of good in that space in terms of championing the benefits of a more introvert approach. So her book, Quiet, does exactly that. It talks about why the workplace is, is more configured for to cater for somebody with a more extrovert approach and, and what you can do about that in order to encourage more from those who maybe have a more internalized way of, of wanting to a more contemplative and more reflective approach. Um, and I think what's where the challenge actually lies, if you get right to the heart of it, is that over the time, I think what we've done is we've created an association between ability and skill and some of those behaviours that's just not there. And again, in, in her book, Quiet, she she talks about just breaking all of that down, actually looking at some, um, you know, fantastic examples of leaders, of thinkers, of creators, who don't conform to that more extrovert model and actually not just that they don't conform to it and they succeed, but they succeed over and above more extrovert counterparts. And I think that's really important to not sort of lose sight of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think, and this just popped into my mind when you were speaking, do you think the change in balance and the type of roles that we do within our economies could be contributing to some of these um, you know, change in advocacy around introversion and things like that. I guess I'm thinking about with things like the rise of, say, a knowledge economy or or some of those types of work. W- do you think there's anything in there about, you know, association with different preferences? That could be, you know, that could be a cul-de-sac of conversation. If so, just let me know and I will reverse right out of there and we can move on to something else. <laughs> Let's drive in. Let's drive in. I'm up for that. <laughs> okay. I, um, I think fundamentally, yes. I think that what whatever we see in terms of demographics is reflective of how the world is. Um, and that, of course, has changed. I think the shape of what kind of companies succeed now has changed and the type of leaders that succeed in building those companies has also changed. So we have seen the rise of a very different type of leader than you would have experienced in, for example, the 70s, 80s, maybe even the 90s, um, particularly with the emergence of not just the kind of knowledge economy, but the geek economy, actually looking at, you know, various tech companies and very, you know, well-established tech leaders and looking at how they operate, how they present themselves, what their brand is. Not a lot of those tech companies are led by people with, you know, strong extrovert preferences. Um, And I think that, that that has created a bit of a, a shift in the way people look at oh, okay so you know there is there is another model here and actually um that that then changes how people choose to present themselves i think one of the things i wanted to you know touch on is the idea that based on my experience of working with this construct this is the one probably out of all the personality characteristics that you can measure that people tend to mask for whatever reason. Um, and I think you find that 
uh, in on an ever increasing level, depending on how high you move up a business. So that kind of that's actually probably kind of counters what I've just said. <laughs> actually, yeah, it, maybe maybe that isn't maybe that isn't representative of, of how the world is and 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 what you know what different models of leadership can look like because people are still hiding this. Yeah, it's what they need. They feel they need from their teams. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And when when you bring in, I guess for positional aspects and hierarchical aspects and you know leader decorum and all those expectations it, it leads to an incentive to to mask some of this which is which is still there um so so we've talked a little bit about masking and, and things like that i guess you know we're masking something and if we're masking something it, it's a thing that exists that, that we're choosing to mask i guess i'd like to step back and think about this thing that exists and i, I guess if i were to phrase this question in two words it would be nature or nurture and is this an evolving state or, or are we kind of what we are through life? Is there any work on nature and nurture in this type of field? Do we know? Well, it depends on how fatalistic you want to be today. Jeez, how, <laughs> how, how, how fatalistic are you feeling? <laughs> um, I will go for seven out of 10 fatalistic. Let's do that. <laughs> Does that help? <laughs> the very um, unpopular view, particularly uh-huh. in our field, mm-hmm. And the pre- prevailing view in terms of the psychological research in general about nature and nurture is that almost everything is nature. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite challenging to idea to hold in our, in our hands because it, it comes with all kinds of assumptions. Where's my it? control? Where's, Where's my, my control? autonomy? <laughs> Where's my choice? Can I change any of this? Yeah. Um, Why don't I just give up now? <laughs> And yet we do know that things can change, right? Because the person that you are now is probably different from the person you were five years ago, 10 years ago. And the person that you will be five years, 10 years from now is probably different from the person that you are now. That that's that has to be true. So there is a middle ground. Um, and I think we can always work with the assumption that these things can change. In terms of what our research has shown around these aspects of personality and measuring them over time, what we tend to find is that they're pretty stable, um, typically not inclined to change drastically over one to two years, especially if there's been no significant changes in somebody's personal lives or professional lives. Um, but there is the capacity for change. And we do see sort of preferences shifting around. In fact, um, we do see a drift with age. So this speaks to something you mentioned right at the start, where um, you said that you, you felt that you maybe move from a more extrovert place to a more introvert place with time. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of feels like it it um, spans my entire lifetime. I think when I was very young, I was very extroverted. I was moderately extroverted in, um, you know, my, I guess my 20s. And as I get older, I'm increasingly um increasingly introverted in many ways and and that presents in a few different ways but part of the the way I notice it is the enjoyment I get out of deep focus on my work in my own domain in my own space where I can explore things richly and contemplatively and slowly and another thing that I've, I've discovered or realized that I very much enjoy is that in many ways I find I do a lot of my best thinking and my best decision-making uh, unintentionally and subconsciously. So I will reach decisions while I'm doing something else. And, and that clarity that I get through um, through that decision-making 
process that's uh, unintentional or takes place in the background of my mind has made me more appreciative of giving myself time and space alone for processing in the background. And and, and so maybe there's a bit of intentionality in there about my, my sort of trend and direction. But certainly I'm, I'm increasingly, you know, drawn towards the deeper reflection that I get on my own. So, yeah, that's kind of my journey. See, that's, I think that really intrigues me because back to the nature-nurture thing, one theory could be you were always this way mm-hmm. and actually you've managed to sort of free yourself from the shackles of culture of society that made you want to conform to the more extrovert bias that we see out there. And you've just become more accepting of the way you are. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, um, without this turning into, without me getting out my couch and having a little lie down, um, I feel that there's very, there is a lot of truth in that. And I think if I look back on myself and my behaviors and the types of things that I've done in the past, often I would find myself in situations where, um, I adopted behaviors to overcome the fact that I didn't really like what I was doing, but I thought I should do. Um, and, and sort of that awareness has been part of that. Um, and in some ways, I, for, again, you know, as a personal reflection, I have found aspects of uh, lockdown and um, specifically aspects of having left a large organization and working for myself hugely rewarding and that they've taken away the expectation for so many of these socially um, intense interactions that, that I anchored onto, um, and that, you know, I learned to, to behave well in, um, but I feel that I've been freed to, to do some of this introversion things. Yeah. And that's, that's it, isn't it? It's that, that thing about you learn to behave well in those situations. People, people become these kind of chameleons sometimes when it, when, when these definitions and these archetypes are so prevalent, it's actually quite easy to mask them and, and not give away too much of what's really going on under the surface, unless, there's some event where it's suddenly revealed, for example, through going through some psychometrics. It's quite common yeah. that that comes up in a session where someone goes, hey, hang on a minute, that's, that's not you, surely. I don't, I don't see that behavior from you at all. And the other person's there going, no, no, that, that's, that's totally me. It's just that I don't choose to show that, that side of myself to you on most, most days. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're kind of skipping around here, but just coming back to this point around nature, nurture, I think, um, I do, we certainly see in terms of our research, there is a drift towards introversion with age. So we, I mean, we have kind of analysis from like ages 20 or so, all the way up to, you know, 79, 80 years old. And we see very clearly there's a drift towards extroversion in the way it's presented in the profiles. Um, And with some people, we don't really answer the question of why. Yeah. Is this nature or nurture? It is just that it happens. And for some people, it's a genuine shift that they're they're very conscious of. And it could be that they find themselves in an environment where suddenly a more introvert way of working is either rewarded or just um, recognized and encouraged. Um, and for others, it's just something that they go through, that they they, they evolve into a different person and they, they go through some level of, of change. Um, either way, it's it can be measured that shift in time and, and and we certainly account for that change to take place which is different for some from some of the psychological models that are out there that say here's your stamp you know let's put this on your head this exists forever and ever amen and it will never change no matter what you do yeah yeah that's interesting that piece with age because 
of course, if you look at sort of like social interaction across society, you see sort of increases in loneliness and 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 sort of a retrenching of the individual, typically as they progress through their lives from, you know, broad social engagement at, at younger ages as it diminishes. So in some ways, that's really quite a heartening message that you're sharing there is if our preferences change along lines with our trend of, uh, I guess, opportunity for social interaction within our lives, that's great. That's all part of a balancing process and and sort of reaffirms the wonder of the human adaptability that we have, mm. which um, which I think is pretty cool. Um, one of my favorite, um, just on that note about adaptability, yeah, yeah. one of my absolute favorite things to quote is a piece around neuropsychology. And, and I'm sure you'll have had people in the past talk about neuroplasticity and the brain's capacity yeah. for change. And one of my favorite things there in that space is that the brain has more sorry, the nervous system has more abilities to create connections than there are atoms in the universe. It's mind-boggling, isn't it, right? I mean, it is mind-boggling. Even, like, the variety and the types of neurons that exist is, you know, beyond my ability to grasp. It's fabulous, isn't it? And the ability to grow and change and and morph into all these things. Um, so if, if we if we look at this this channel, this this channel of thinking to speaking or thinking, 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 and then speaking as a neurological pathway. Our preferences are just pathways that have been well-trodden over time. They become rehearsed, they become comfortable, they become the quickest way for us to get to that space in our, in our thinking. Doesn't mean that we can't change them. Yeah. Yeah. We've just got wider neural channels Hmm. in some instances than in others. And if we use the others, we'll just flex those muscles. And before you know it, we'll be, something different. Um, mm-hmm. I've got a question for you, a topic that I've been interested in recently that I think sort of links with some of what you've been speaking there about, you know, the, the sort of um, neurology of us as individuals in relation to our work is this concept of flow and, and getting to these states where we kind of shut off our chattering voices and are fully absorbed in what we're doing, which is one of the indications of, uh, of being in that sense of flow. Do you think that introverts and extroverts experience flow in different ways? Is there a relationship between the types of activities that lead to a flow state for introverts and extroverts? And if so, could you say a little bit about what you think some of those differences might be? Mm. Yeah, I think there is absolutely a relationship. And you will also see a relationship between the edges of the flow state. So when you're getting into kind of boredom, discomfort, I think uh, that can be there. And also if you're getting into kind of anxiety, stress, and stretch a little bit further down, that, that there's you can work in that space as well when you're thinking about these constructs i think the danger with um uh, considering things like personality profiling psychometric profiling with um, regard to flow is that um there's a temptation to try and create situations and environments that absolutely appeal 100 percent to somebody's preferences so you know for, as an example Let's say somebody comes out with a more extrovert, introvert approach in their profile. Uh, oh, yeah, we'll just pop them for lots and lots of time for contemplation and reflection and consideration and quiet, you know, in inverted commas, quiet work. Uh, and we know from our research that, yeah, that might be comfortable for a little while, but actually long term, that's really, really terrible for somebody's um, sort of mental well-being and psychological health. Actually, flow state is more about playing with the two and trying to get, yes, an element of comfort, an element of familiarity, thinking about that stimulation theory, but also 
stretching enough into that opposite space that it provides additional challenge which we crave as human beings it's almost this kind of weird paradox of something we we want the thing that this test says we are or this psychologist says that we are but also we also crave the other thing as well this is why we have to explore the spectrum rather than just you know two labels um typically with with you know the way we work and this is a very broad brush right so just as a heavy caveat this is a very broad brush of statement is we tend to find about a two-thirds overlap is about right to be in flow state so in other words two-thirds of what you're doing or how you're working to be catered for in the way that you prefer in your style but at a third of your time a third of your work a third of your behavior could be in a totally separate space and that seems to be about right for most people that's fascinating and so, so we, we need that variety to to bring us back to a place of i guess optimal functioning or optimal it certainly seems so you know if if that, if that drops down so let's say that percentage was more like i don't know 20 or 10 I don't know, have you ever been in that sort of space well I, I i certainly know that i can get to the stage where i'm far too sort of introverted in my environment and i go a bit crazy and then i'll go and seek something to i guess rebalance me and bring me mm. back into a different um different state so yeah i can relate to that what about you oh yeah exactly the same yeah i i um i pre-covid i used to do lots of travel and for me that was kind of my third space where mm -hmm. typically i wasn't spending lots of time um talking to people or having meetings but actually that was just pure thinking processing time working out problems imagining new things maybe even creating things um but I couldn't do that all the time. Absolutely not. I, I, I always felt like there was a pullback to, okay, and now I need to externalize this with somebody or I need to charge myself up by doing something else. Um, so, but yeah, typically, you know, we find that yeah, that kind of picture, loads of people do it though. You know, people are in that position all day, every day for years of their lives without really realizing it and knowing that there's something not quite right, but not being able to quite put the finger on why. Mm. Um, and that can lead to, you know, in extreme cases, work-related stress yeah. so that there's this sort of physiological response to a psychological disconnect that goes on yeah yeah and, and i guess you know it feels like it could lead to that sort of a burnouty state as you said with that stress but but i, I mm. also wonder if there's almost the inverse of burnout where it almost becomes that over sedate under stimulated type of space that leads to stress from the absence of of that alternate state, if that makes sense. I can imagine yeah. there's something like that. On and that's that, that's that weird paradox, isn't it? It's like intuitively, yeah. it's like the more of this we give to somebody, the more comfortable they should be. But yeah, we certainly find that that's not, not a good picture long-term at all. There yeah. are certain situations where it can be. So let's say, for example, uh, somebody's got loads going on in their personal lives and work is a, is a safe place where they know that they can have a good sense of self-worth, have a good sense of productivity and, and reward and getting things done and, and being recognized for what they're, where they're bringing to the table. In that sort of situation, there might be, you know, it might be really comfortable to spend lots of time in that preferred style. But long-term, yeah, it will lead to boredom. It will lead to disengagement. 
Yeah. And I guess even in that example, it, it, it sort of reflects where you draw the boundaries. If you draw the boundaries around the whole person, then they are getting that balance by having, you know, challenge elsewhere and things like that. Um, so we've spoken a lot about what introversion and extroversion are, where they come from, you know, the sort of scale of relationships, their fixedness, the sort of predetermination of them or not, the views and perceptions of them. Um, I guess I'd like to just sort of turn it around and, and do a little bit of a, a so what on some of this. So so we've learned all this. I guess I've got a question. If somebody is out there um, and they're not sure where they are uh, on this, this sort of spectrum, there are lots of tools that will help them do this. Why should they do that? You know, what's in it for them if they go out and maybe take a test or get some feedback and understand what they are? What, what will they get from doing that? How will that help them mm. uh, in their, their you know personal lives or in their work life? Oh, all that. I mean, all kinds of reasons why it could help in the personal lives. I think for me, looking at that picture, you have to also zoom out to look at how it can help other people. So as an example, there could be somebody in your team who you would just love to improve your relationship with, but for whatever reason, it's just not happened. Um, more often than not, when we work with teams, there's this this phrase that comes back around like personality clash. And I, I've never really found that that exists. Um, if anything, it's just, it's always about misunderstandings. People have, have misunderstandings about the intentions behind the behavior that they see from other people. So this is back to bias, right? So, you know, our, our interpretation of other people's behavior has to be guided by our own sort of psychological lenses that we wear. So it's really helpful, first of all, to know what those lenses are and how mindful we need to be of them. So if, are there any behaviors that we're likely to just sort of over kind of emphasize, reward, recognize, prioritize above others? Do we need to do anything about that? But also, um, do I need to be careful about how I take meaning from other people's behavior based on my own? So as an example, um, let's say a relatively unself-aware manager was conducting a meeting and her um, approach was tending more towards the extrovert side. She might well be thinking to herself, there's a colleague in the room, hasn't said anything for ages, seems to be lost in their own thoughts. And um, every time I go to them and ask them what they think about this, they just come up and they're giving me nothing. Now, she could be taking all kinds of meaning from that behavior that is entirely not intended and therefore forming this story about this person in their mind, about who this person is in the team, what their value is, what their um, uh, uh, role might be in any given project. And again, that could be just a, totally down the wrong path. So what I'd be keen to, to do is, you know, in, in that kind of situation, demystifying all of that behavior, depersonalizing all of that behavior, and just giving some explanations as to what's going on. And how can we understand that in a much more strategic way and a much more helpful way? Yeah, in, in that example that you spoke about there, I could really imagine, you know, with my sort of more team leadery, extroverty hat on from times when I've been there, maybe thinking that this person's demotivated, they don't want to be there, they're holding back, you know, they're intentionally not contributing, all this kind of stuff. And, and you could pigeonhole um, there 
uh, you know, their behaviors into potentially the way that, that you would be feeling were you behaving that way in that instance, right? Yeah. And you like, I'm resentful in it, so I'm not going to share and I'm intentionally doing that um, because I'm in this bad place or whatever it is. So you might, you know, push that onto them when in reality, they're just thinking and reflecting and waiting till they've got more clarity and really engaged and, you know, they've just got one of those resting faces that maybe doesn't look that way. Um, so, yeah, interesting. And in terms of shaping um, activities within a team, say if you're a team manager or a team leader and, and you're looking to create or, um, you know, shape or, or co-create or whatever phrase we want to use, ways of working that would be supportive of a blend of people within your, your team or your organization, what are some things that you could do or things that you should think about in terms of creating opportunities for introverts and extroverts to to be at their best and to to really both contribute well but be fulfilled and rewarded in in their work Mm. i think it doesn't need to be rocket science this one it can be really simple practical changes that take place that suddenly shift everything so and and this is this is the kind of consultant in me the facilitator in me I, i my first thought is is to ask. Um, it always it, sounds so simple, doesn't it? Right? So like, like... <laughs> how do you want to work with me? How do how do we want to work with each other? Can we come up with some, not necessarily some rules, but just some guidelines about how we think we can work with each other in the best way? Most most teams get by on that front with just guesswork. Yeah, and it doesn't work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's got all that assumption in there, right? It's got all that assumption about what behaviors mean and what actions mean and what inaction means and all of that. Um, I guess starting those conversations can be a little bit intimidating if, if they're not things that, that people have done before. Mm-hmm. And if those questions are really quite broad. So how do we want to work together can be oh, like a really broad question. Uh, are, are, have you got any, I guess, sort of um, categories that people could break that down into that, that mm-hmm. might be helpful within teams? Have you got things that people might use as as, um, levers to open that conversation up. And shameless plug here, right? This is is where profiles come in. They can be really helpful because they help take the complexity out of that conversation really cleverly. A, they make it less personal. Um, Or you can dial up the personal if you wanted to once you got there. But actually, even just most psychometrics that you work with will have an element of this where there might be some like communication tips. So like something that we would typically do with a team is to get a team to sort of pick out five or six of those that really resonate with them, share them with the team. And then as a group, we'll go through them all together so that we can get some clarity. So, you know, James, you, as I can see you put in your profile, this is something that you picked out. Um, you really love it when people are punctual to meetings. What does that mean to you? What does punctual look like? Um, you know, if we're having a meeting at nine o'clock, do I need to be there at nine? Does it, do I need to be there at five to nine? Do I need to be there understanding that most meetings start with talking about what we watched on Netflix last night at maybe 10 past nine? Can I understand that better? Can I, can I get that? Can you give me that so that I can be more strategic in the way that we are working together? As an example, and then as a group, we can then look at all of those different tips and say, well, are there any patterns and trends there that say something about what we're like as a team? You know, if, if somebody new is joining our team, is there a, a way that we can quickly accelerate them to a new level of understanding about what it's like to work with us all and what it's likely to to deal with us as a community? So it can be really helpful. I think, again, there's something that's practical and applied is usually the best way to move those conversations forward and, and try and 
break down the apprehension that somebody might have to getting into that space with somebody or a group. And and with those conversations, do you think that, you know, reaching an outcome is the most important bit? Or do you think having the conversation is the most important bit? Is, is it the journey? Is it the destination? Is it both? Does it depend? I like the does it depend answer, of course, but I, I was just wondering if you had a, a strong, strong view. Depends on the team. Depends on, depends, depends on the group that you're working with. Some of those, some groups absolutely like the outcome to be, we've done the important thinking and we've started the conversation. Other groups need to walk away with, oh, okay, so I've got a list of everybody in my team and I've got top three tips for working with every single one of them and I'm happy with that. Um, and I'll go away and I'll and I'll achieve those by the next three months. So it's, it's um, I think it does depend. I think, but I my personal belief is, Yes, the conversation is important. It starts with the conversation, um, but it also starts with this sort of process of. So I'm a big believer in systems thinking. So actually, holding up a mirror to a, an individual or a team and saying, "What do you see here? Does this explain anything that's been happening lately? Does this give us any extra information about how we need to conduct ourselves over the next six to twelve months?" That's a really important first step about revealing the system to itself. Once that's happened, the conversations will happen very organically and naturally. And the action or change that's required will happen very organically and naturally once this, the system has understood what's going on within it. Yeah, brilliant. That, that's really helpful. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to start to to wrap us up a little bit. But I've kind of got one, one last question before we go into checking out. And that's, I just... My guess is that having listened to this, a few people will will go out and do some, um, you know, some self assessment or, or take a personality test or, or do do a little bit in in that self discovery space. I guess I just wanted to ask you, what does that journey feel like to people? What's the sort of emotional process that people can go through when they see written back on paper a summary of themselves? What what, what does that feel like for people? What are the different types of responses you've seen in people? very wide i've had um this may be a surprise given that you know in this case we were talking about you know a a popular kind of personality profiling tool tears is relatively common for someone who's not had this kind of feedback before for someone who's not had their reality explained in that way using that language or maybe they've just suddenly understood something about a colleague that just unlocks a bit of learning um, and it can be transformational it can be nothing short of transformational on the other hand it can also be purely confirmatory um you know it, it's not uncommon to find people who've been through these things you know for decades and they've been tested and retested and they've, they've tried this test and this profile and the other and they r- roughly come out the same on all of them and of course it just becomes this self-propagating wheel of oh i'm a bit like lit aren't i and the more likely I am to see that question, the more likely I am to say, oh, yeah, I'm a bit more like that now because I've been doing more of that. And this profile keeps telling me that I am more of that. So um, I think and everything in between <laughs> more more often than not, though. And this is always surprises me is this um, phrase of I cannot believe how accurate this is. Almost as though they're expecting it to be quite you know, woolly or. Um, more like Barnum statements about about themselves. Whereas actually, yes. you know, a good psychometric should be, yes, it should be valid. It should be reliable. It should have good research underpinning it. But it also, it should have high utility. It should work. It should be practical and usable. So um, I think if somebody's reaction is, 
I can't believe how accurate this is. They can then get over that hurdle of, right, so this is what I'm going to do about it. And this is how I'm going to apply this learning to my next project that I'm working with my team or my relationship with my boss or um, this individual who I'm struggling with as a stakeholder uh, group. So I think um, for me, that's my favorite response is somebody who says, actually, yes, I this is so me. I can't wait to share it with somebody. And I can't wait to see theirs. So actually I can learn a bit more about them and it becomes this sort of, you know, community of, of, of sharing and, and building trust essentially yeah. is where you get to. There's, um, there's something really powerful and validating about feeling seen and understood. And I've heard people talk about seeing their results. And, and I think your phrase was, you know, this is so accurate. This is so me. I think there's something really validating for some people about seeing this written down and feeling understood and, and the, you know, that, that sort of creating a reality of their sense of self that can be really, really powerful for some people. Um, mm. Brilliant. Okay. Well, uh, I think we're going to wrap stuff up there. Um, how can people learn a little bit about more? Um, let's try it again. How can people learn a little bit more about you and the stuff that you do and maybe get in touch and, and generally uh, learn a bit more about what you're up to? Well, you'll find all that you need to know about our company and our products at www.tmsdi.com. We're also on Twitter at TMSDI. As for me, you'll find me tweeting, blogging, blogging about all things psychology um, at that Mark Gilroy. Same handle on Twitter and Instagram. Um, but yeah, if you if you want to join me in any psychological geekery, you'll find me there anytime. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, you guys can all have a geek off online. That sounds um, sounds very good. And I'll, I'll be there too. So it's just a, a big thank you for me. That was great fun. So thanks very much, Mark. Thank you, James. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget, as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that everyone can attend. You can sign up for these and our newsletter, The Wow Mail, on our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io.